we as human beings, we have been created to worship. Um, That is very evident, not only within the church, but that is particularly evident even when you look at the secular culture of our age and the secular culture of every age. I remember the pop singer Madonna once said, I will not be happy until I am as famous as God himself. And well-known communist and socialist philosopher Karl Marx remarked that my object in life is to dethrone God and to destroy capitalism. And of course, we know that we have so many reality competition on TV, singing shows, dance shows, and whatnot, uh, but a lot of this was all kicked off by the show titled American Idol. We as a people are built to worship. And if we don't worship God, we will worship either ourselves or we will worship other people. For celebrities, they desire to be worshipped. They know that the worship of them as celebrities translates to a lot of money. And people that try to deny God's existence and come up with philosophies and theories and ideologies that are strictly anti-biblical do so in rebellion against any concept of God. And we know even in these scriptures, we have example of people stealing the glory of God for themselves. In the Old Testament, we have none other than Nebuchadnezzar, who proclaimed glory unto himself and was immediately turned into a wild beast sent off to eat like cattle in the field. In the New Testament, we had Herod actually take credit and take glory for himself, and then immediately get struck down by God. So we have examples of people taking glory that ultimately belongs to God. And like I said, it is just proof that we are all built to worship. That mechanism in ourselves that seeks for someone to exalt is how God has created us, but it is a misappropriation. It is a misdirected purpose in terms of directing that worship towards someone other than God. Even as little kids, I remember growing up and basketball had always been my favorite sport. And of course, what do we do with our favorite players? We buy posters of them. We put them up on our walls. We we look at their statistics. We check up on their games. And we go into the playground and argue with one another over who's the better player. You know, so even as kids, we seek someone to idolize. We seek someone to make into our God. But for us as believers... We must not put other people on a pedestal. We must not make the world center around our own desires and and our own selves, as many celebrities do. And in this age of entitlement, this age where people are all about how they feel and wanting to be happy and and just doing whatever it is that, uh, that helps to fulfill their dreams and their desires is just a form of self worship. Instead, what we must do is we must look towards the one who is truly worthy of that worship. We must look to the one who is truly worthy of that praise and that glory. And that is none other than God himself. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All three of them together make up God and they are worthy, absolutely worthy of our praise and no one else. 
We even know going back to the Old Testament, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. The first one is that you will have no other gods before me. And two, you shall not make any idols. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I am your God, a jealous God. He is the only one that is worthy of that worship. He is the one that we must direct our attentions to. And if we understood the greatness of God, if we understood the mighty power of God, if we recognized each and every day the magnificent amount of love, mercy, and grace that he demonstrated towards us, it should make it absolutely obvious. It should move our hearts towards worshiping him and him alone. And so my sermon this morning is titled, The Heart Motivation for Praise. Because as we get towards the end of chapter 3, we had started to cover Paul's prayer last week, and we certainly did cover most of it. But we're going to get to the end of it, which includes his doxology, and then after that, the book changes its direction from theology towards application. It changes It changes its direction from telling us about God, teaching us about God, to now instructing us on how we are to behave in light of that knowledge of God. And so this is going to be a very pivotal passage. And given that this is the Thanksgiving service, is the last service before we have Thanksgiving, may I just tell you that Thanksgiving, obviously, if I were to ask you what is Thanksgiving for, I'm sure most of you would say it's to give thanks to God for all the good things he has done for us. And thanksgiving is not to be divorced or separated from praise. Oftentimes, when we can't think of anything to praise God over, which should never be the case, but whenever we're searching for something to give praise over, all we have to do is reflect upon the thanksgiving we owe him for all that he has done for us. And as you'll see in this passage that we'll look at this morning, that thanksgiving, that praise should be for all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that should be our heart. That should be the motivation in our heart to give praise to him. Because that's what's going to mark us out as Christians. What's going to mark us out as Christians in the world is that we are not ashamed of God. That not only that, but we seek to share God. That we seek to give him praise. And not only give him praise, but we have a never-ending list of things that we can give him praise for. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we want to help fill our hearts with with praise by reminding ourselves of the great and wonderful things that God has done for us. But as we look at this passage, this passage, as I mentioned, comes at a critical point. And so what we're going to do this morning, uh, we'll take a look at this passage. But what I'm actually going to do is do a walkthrough of the first three chapters. I'm going to do a walkthrough of the first three chapters because by the time we get back towards Paul's prayer and the praise at the end of chapter 3, that praise hopefully will become much more powerful and will motivate you towards greater faithfulness and greater love towards God and give you the motivation that we all need in order to walk worthy in the manner by which we have been called. So let's take a look at the passage Um, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We studied chapter 3, verses 14 through 19 last week. And and this morning we're on verses 20 to 21. Now, as a warning, um, I've been told that the fonts on these slides are a little bit too small. They're even smaller this morning. 
Um, so you're going to have to open up your Bibles, but that's okay. We're going to be walking, we're pretty much walking through Ephesians. So you can follow along. You can look up at the screen to see what I have underlined if, if you can see it. Otherwise, I'll point it out. Uh, but let's take a look at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. And we read this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in earth and in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in truth, in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now those last two verses are what we call a doxology. And I will return back to that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But on this slide, if you can see it, what I have underlined is in verse 20. It says, now to him who is able... To do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works within us. What may not be as clear in the English is that power is being emphasized. When it says now to him who is able, it's literally now to him who is powerful. Now to him who has the power to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works. And the word for works is, is the same word we get energy from that, that is energizing us, that is working within us. And we saw earlier in verse 16 that Paul had talked about his prayer to God would be that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Because the truth is, for all that we are, which are, we are to be, we are children in, uh, of God if we have proclaimed Jesus Christ as our Savior. For all that we are and all that we are to be, we are absolutely reliant upon the power of God, both in our salvation as well as our sanctification. We were completely reliant upon God, both in our salvation to save us, but also in our sanctification to make us more like Christ. And so I'm going to break this up into three sections this morning as we do a review of Ephesians and then return back to that doxology and think about application. And the first section of this morning's lesson is the power of God provided in salvation. The power of God provided in salvation. And this is where we go back to the beginning. We take a look at Ephesians 1.1, and I would recommend if you have your Bible, open up your Bible, go to Ephesians 1.1. Because the font here is readable, but pretty soon it's going to be very, very small. And right there in 1.1, Paul introduces himself as what? He introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. But he doesn't just stop there. He says an apostle of Christ Jesus by what? The will of God. This is talking about the sovereign will of God. And when we talk about God being sovereign, sovereign means he is fully in control. Now, if I say that God is also omnipotent, that means he is all-powerful. And if you think about it, the fact that he is sovereign is completely codependent with the fact that he is omnipotent. Because he can't be in control unless he is all-powerful. 
And if he is all-powerful, then he must necessarily be in full control. So this is Paul calling himself an apostle of Christ Jesus, recognizing it wasn't by anything that he has done to be an apostle, but he is an apostle strictly by the sovereign will and power of God. And then when we continue on to the next section, this was the great praise of Paul, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. So you can see it's very small up on the board, so you might want to look at your Bibles, but I'll go ahead and just read through this and emphasize the, the parts that I want you to note. Because as we look at these verses, Paul is going to praise God. He is going to lift praise to God for all that God has done for us. He is worthy of praise no matter what. But in addition, he is worthy of praise simply for all the things that he has done for us as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What are those spiritual blessings? Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And then verse six, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us. And then verse seven, in him, we have redemption through his blood. What does that mean? That means the ongoing forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. His grace, verse 8, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. And what I want to point out there is that all those sections that I have underlined, or all those sections as you were listening to me, all those sections that I emphasized as I was reading it, there are numerous blessings that God has showered upon us. There are numerous ways that we can be thankful to God just in this passage alone right here. And if you look next on the next slide here, you'll see that I, in addition to that, have highlighted some areas. Highlighted some areas that emphasize God's sovereign will in all this. At the end of verse 5, it says, according to the kind intention of his will. At the end of verse 9, it says, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And verse 11 ends with having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So we see that all these blessings that God has showered us with has been by his sovereign will. And as we, as I mentioned just a moment ago, when we talk about his sovereign will, you've got to think also of the fact that God is all powerful to make those things happen. And as we continue onward also, 
this, uh, the next slide, I highlighted three more areas, four more areas, actually, just to remind us that all these things, when we're talking about God's sovereign will and the blessings that provided it to us, it is all driven by the motivation of praise. See, Paul started off verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of verse six, he says to the praise of the glory of his grace. At the end of verse 12, he says to the praise of his glory. And the end of verse 14, he says, to the praise of his glory. You see, when we think about God's sovereign will and the magnificent blessings that God brought to us through his sovereign will. We should not respond in any other way except to give praise to the Lord, to give praise for his glory. But after giving us this opening praise and and showering us, just listing off all these spiritual blessings that we have been blessed with, Paul then goes into his prayer for knowledge in verses 15 through 23, the end of the rest of chapter 1. Verse 15 to 23 reads this, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, while making mention of you in my prayers. And what is his prayer? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul wants you to know God. Paul wants you to have a spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know God even more. And verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know So that you will know, and he lists off three things, so that you will know, one, the hope of his calling. Number two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? So that first one, the hope of his calling. There is hope tied up in the fact that we have been saved. We have a hope that the rest of the world doesn't have. We have things that we can look forward to that the rest of the world can't look forward to without Jesus Christ. And then the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is to say that God will actually inherit us and there will be glory in that as well. But as we look at verse 19, and the reason why I have verses 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23 all highlighted is because the third thing that Paul wants you to know that is clearly emphasized in this prayer is the power of God. Verse 19, he also wants you to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Paul is stacking power language here. He not only says his power towards us who believe, but he talks about the working, the energizing of the strength of his might. He's using numerous words, numerous synonyms to all talk about the power of God that is working in us. And verses 20 and 21 talks about how that power has been demonstrated in Christ. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. The power that Paul wants us to know is the same power that was working in the Lord Jesus Christ to raise him up from the dead and to seat him at the right hand of God and to exalt his name above every name. That is an awesome power to have available to us. Uh, But then verses 22, 23, it's also the power to subject all things under his feet. Verse 22, and he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all 
in all. So what we see here is that all things will be put into subjection under Christ, and Christ is the head of the church, and we have the blessings of being a part of that church, which is his body. And not only as we get to the end of this prayer and we see this emphasis upon power, Paul goes on to demonstrate how that power has worked in us. Starting in chapter 2, verse 1, we see God's work of salvation, that power of God. Now Paul is going to turn his attention to how that power of God worked in our lives. And you know these verses. I've been repeating these over and over again. Verses 1 to 3 describe all of us prior to Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. As we look at those first three verses, there is nothing good about us prior to Christ. There is nothing that we did to deserve salvation. There is nothing in us in which God looked down and said, you know what, I see a good one there. No. These verses make it clear we were all wretched. And that's why in verse 4 we see this, but God. God had to intercede. God had to one that had to get in our way and make sure that he turned us around. Because it says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. The love and the mercy of God led us to do this. That in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He brought us to life when we had no spiritual life. He made us lovers of God when we were haters of God. He made us followers of Christ when we were followers of Satan. And he did that completely on his own. For even at the end of verse 5, it says, For by grace you have been saved. By grace, meaning that you contributed nothing. But he not only made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. And though we are here physically, there is a sense in which we are united with him spiritually, even up in the heavens. And then verse 8 through verse 9, we see Paul repeating over and over again that this is God's gift and we had nothing to do with it. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul repeats in different ways five times that it is not you but God. It is not you but God. The end of verse 9, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, here is the result. Here is the purpose. Here is what God would have us to do. For we are his workmanship. We are not the result of our own work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, as before we skip to the next section, just as a reminder, verse 2 talks about how we formerly walked. Verse 10 talks about how we are to walk. Verse 2 talks about how we formerly walked after Satan, after the ways of this world. And verse 10 talks about the good works in which we are to walk in, the good works which were prepared beforehand by God himself. 
So even in this passage, even as we see God's work of salvation, the power of God in making us alive together in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, even as we see this power, we also see a purpose that we are created to glorify God by walking in works that we did not walk in before. And then as we go on to chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, which is really the rest of chapter 2, we see God's work in unifying peoples together. God's work in unifying peoples together. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is describing our condition of our ancestors even prior to Christ's coming. That only the Jews, for, for the most part, with some exceptions, mostly the Jews knew about God's plan, God's will, God's covenants, God's promises. And certainly only the nation of Israel were given the promises of blessings of obedience. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who, were formerly, who formerly were far off have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is talking about the work of Jesus Christ through the blood of Christ in bringing peoples together, first starting with Jews and Gentiles. And if God can bring together Jews and Gentiles, then that includes everyone. Because Jews and Gentiles covers every single person on this earth. He has established peace. But not only that, verse 16, it says, And he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. So he not only eliminated, eliminated the enmity that existed between people groups, within the household of God, but he also eliminated the enmity that existed between us and God. He brought people together, and he also brought those people together to God. And verse 17 is a quote of the Old Testament, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. This is to say that the message of salvation, the good news, went out to everyone and did not discriminate based upon people groups. And verse 18, for through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So while we were once strangers, while we did not know God, we now have access to him. And we don't only have access to him, we have access to him as our Father in the household of God, in one spirit, in the same spirit as any Jew who has recognized Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Verse 19, the result is, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. I mean, think of these blessings. I mean, it's just one thing to say that God saved us and we no longer have to pay the penalty for sins. But Paul is just listing them out one by one by one by one, section by section, all the various blessings given to us through the cross. We have so much to be thankful for, so much. And then we get to chapter 3. 
Paul is about to start his closing prayer, but then he decides to give us his personal testimony. Verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of man, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Paul recognizes that everything that he does now has been given to him to do. He has not earned his position as an apostle. Remember, we saw that in the beginning of chapter one, that he is an apostle by the will of God. And here he is emphasizing with all these statements that things were given to me. It's by grace, it's as a gift. His ministry, he realizes, is by the grace of God. He takes no pride in himself in terms of what he is doing because he knows that it is God that has given him this opportunity, has given him this ministry, has even given him the knowledge which he is able to reveal to Gentiles. Verse 7, once again, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of his power. And listen to how he describes himself. Verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That is a mouthful, but Paul is essentially saying that he was given this grace to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ as it is being proclaimed through us as the church. We as the church stand as a model, a witness, and a testimony of God's manifold wisdom in bringing us together. The division that existed between peoples that started all the way back with the Tower of Babel and even before then when the languages were confused and people groups were created and nations were split. That now in Christ we are brought together no matter what our background is, no matter what our ethnicity, no matter what our culture was, no matter how we were raised, no matter what we believe, we are all now one new glorious man in Christ. And verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith In him, that boldness and confident access is another way of saying that we have the freedom to speak freely to God and to access him at any time. You know, the nation of Israel, when they wanted to go into the most holy of holy places, they can only go once a year and there was only one man who can go. Now we have direct access to God 365 days a year through the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have direct access to him. Verse 13, Paul says this, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. This is a reminder that Paul is writing this from prison. And he's telling the Ephesians, don't worry about me. This is the grace of God given to me, and it is for your glory. 
I mean, this is just praise upon praise upon praise, blessing upon blessing. And as we get to the next section, that leads us to the second section of this morning's message. And that brings us back to the prayer. The first section, the power of God provided in salvation. The second section is now the power of God highlighted in prayer. The power of God highlighted in prayer. So we'll read this again. As Paul has just gone through reciting all the magnificent blessings given to us, the demonstration of God's power as demonstrated to us. He says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man. Why? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. This is Paul praying that you may know that that you may know that you would have the power of God through the Holy Spirit, that you may be able to know the love of Christ, which surpasses all knowledge. He wants you to know that which surpasses knowledge, and you can only do that by devoting yourself to knowing God through his word. Developing that relationship through your walk, through prayer. And so that brings us to this doxology starting in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's take a look at this doxology. Looking back at verse 20. Paul says, now to him who is able, and I just mentioned this, when he says to him who is able, literally he is saying, now to him, the one with power, the one who has power. Now to the one with power, the one who has power. The one who has power. So this verse is filled with power references. It starts with now to him who has power, and then later it talks about the power that works within us. But Paul here is shifting his focus from the prayer for the Ephesians to now his praise towards God. And as we continue on, it says the power to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Now, think about this for a moment. We could simply praise God for being powerful. We can even praise him for being even more powerful than we think. Having more power than we can imagine. All right, but what Paul says here, he he is stacking superlatives to make this as emphatic as he possibly can. I mean, look at the wording, even here in the English, to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. He could have just said more abundantly, but he says far more abundantly. But he doesn't just say far more abundantly. He says far more abundantly beyond all and not just beyond all, but all that we ask. And not just all that we ask, but all that we can even think. Now, when we look at this reference to all that we ask, clearly that's a reference to what we pray for. And Paul is saying, whatever you pray to God for, God is more powerful than even that, to even meet meet above and beyond what you ask for. And not just what you pray for, but what you can even possibly imagine. Because in our minds, we can imagine what we really want, and then we end up asking for what we want. But what we really want might be above and beyond what we actually ask. 
And Paul is saying, look, the power of God not only exceeds what you actually ask, it exceeds even your imagination and what you can think. Now, we might look at this and say, well, wait a second, wait a second. I have prayed many things to God and I have not seen them fulfilled. Well, we must understand that when we lift our request to God, God has the right to answer them in one of three ways. So he always answers your prayers, but he may answer them with either a yes or a no or a wait. And we'll talk about that more. Next week, I'll do a topical message on the topic of prayer. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, But here, Paul is really reflecting upon the power of God. And when you think of the life of Paul, it's easy to see why he thinks this. It's easy to see why he believes this. Because even in his own life, he was a persecutor of the church. He was the one that was, that was tracking down Christians and bringing them to, to, to court and approving of their stoning like he did the deacon Stephen. He, in his mind, was the least worthy of all apostles, even least, leaster, less worthy than even the least of the saints. In the Greek, he uses the word leaster. Literally, it would be translated leaster. But he even considers himself less than the least of all the saints in terms of his worthiness. So he, of all people, was not only saved, but he was given this amazing responsibility to be an apostle for Christ and to be able to bring the gospel to Gentiles and to know what he knows. And so that is why, as he writes these first three chapters, he is overflowing with praise. And it all starts with his knowledge. But as we continue on, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. According to the power that works within us. Now, the power that works within us, we've seen this in earlier passages. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, Paul said, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That Holy Spirit of promise sealed us. It was given to us as a pledge. We have the Holy Spirit residing within us. And in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know amongst all things the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. This in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. So once again, this power that works within us, this is a power that he has been emphasizing as we have read through. And then in chapter 3, we just read this, verses 14 through 16. 16 in particular says that Paul is praying that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So power is a common theme. It is a, it is a theme that underlines the first three chapters. It is, a, it is a central thread that Paul wants you to know and understand. It is the power of God as has been demonstrated in how he has saved you and the blessings that he has poured out upon you. As we continue to verse 21, verse 21 says to him, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That first part, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, I said we call this a doxology. These two verses, verses 20 to 21, is a doxology. What is a doxology? It's basically a combination of two Greek words. The first part, doxa, means glory. And The second part comes from logos, which means word. So literally, it's a word of praise, a word of glory. And when we say word, it's not just it's not always just a word, but it could be a phrase. It could be a sentence. It could be a statement that comprises of a series of sentences. 
is basically any kind of statement of praise given up to God. And looking back again at verse 20, that's where he addresses God. He addresses God as the one who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And here in verse 21 at the start, this is where he gives him praise and glory. He says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, why does he start by glory in the church? Because his emphasis here, leading up to this part of Ephesians, has been what Jesus Christ has done for the sake of the church. How Jesus Christ has not only died for us in bringing us salvation, but he has died for us in creating us one new man in the church, bringing people groups together. So there is the glory of God in the church, but also in Christ Jesus. Now, you would normally think, why not start with Christ Jesus? Well, he starts with the church because that is the result. But he also says, and in Christ Jesus, because all this comes as a result of the work of Christ Jesus. So glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And then the last part, into all generations forever and ever. Amen. Doxologies typically end with this statement of eternity. With this expression of eternity. eternity. To hear here, he says, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Paul, after having gone through the first three chapters, what's amazing about this section is that Paul is saying that he is even, despite all the power that he has talked about, the power of salvation, the power to, to, to raise you up despite you being dead in your transgressions and sin, the, the power to bring together people groups, the power in Paul's ministry to, to proclaim the gospel, to help the gospel continue to advance even when Paul is in prison. Despite all this power, Paul is saying that God is even more powerful than that. And why this emphasis on power? Why do we need to be reminded of this power? Because as we go into chapter 4, chapter 4 is going to talk about how we are to walk. And that brings us to the third section. The first section was power of God provided in salvation, and then power of God highlighted in prayer. Section 3 is the power of God applied to sanctification. And this will be relatively brief, but I'll pull some verses for the um, first from chapter 2 just as a reminder so as we look at chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 just as a reminder I mentioned this already but verse 2 talks about how you formerly walked prior to being saved and verse 10 talks about the good works in which we are to walk all right so 1 talks about how we walked before verse 10 talks about how we are to walk now that we're in Christ but then when we go forward through chapters 4 through 6 and we're not going to read through this like we did the first three chapters. Let me just highlight a few verses to you so that you understand part of this walk. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, having understand the glorious riches and blessings that are connected to your salvation, the incredible privilege that you have, the access to God that you have, the promise of salvation that you have in the future, the hope that can never be taken away, the relationship you have with Jesus Christ. Having taken all that in, Paul now gives this central command, which is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, can I get a show of hands? How many of you have walked perfectly worthy of the calling by which you have been called? Not me. All right, this is, this is a high calling. This is a high calling. And he's going to go on to talk about what this means. In fact, 
Chapters 4 through 6 can be broken up into about six sections, starting in 4 verse 1, as I just read. And then chapter 4 verse 17, he goes on to say this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So he talks about how the Gentiles walk, which is how we all once walked prior to salvation. And then chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. I have heard many people describe themselves as being loving people. But can you match this statement to walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you? That is the call. And then going on, verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, For you were once formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then going to the next slide, chapter 5, verse 15, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And then in chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, It is no longer a command to walk, but it is now a command to stand. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggles is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. This is spiritual warfare, and we are now protecting ourselves against the forces of darkness, particularly against Satan himself. Is that something you think you can do in your own power? So all these commands, as we look at the next slide, I'm going to summarize them here. Just to summarize, we are to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We are to walk no longer as Gentiles. You are to walk in love. You are to walk as children of light. You are to walk as wise men, not unwise. And you are to stand firm against the schemes of Satan. Question is, how are you to accomplish this? How are you to accomplish this? Accomplish this? Well, in contemplating and reflecting upon all that we have read in the first three chapters, it's this, that the power of God that saved you Amen. is the power of God that sanctifies you. The power of God that, was, that saved you despite you being dead and the, the power of God that broke down the walls of enmity between people groups and between you and God is the same power that's going to sanctify you and allow you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. Now, those commandments, we know we will never perfectly fulfill them. We will never perfectly get there. But day by day, we are growing. We're becoming more and more like Christ. In fact, looking at the next slide, I want you to take comfort in God's good sovereignty. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, once again, it means that he is fully in control. But the verse 
I'm going to pull up is Romans 8, 28 to 30. Romans 8, 28 through 30 reads this. And we know that God causes all things to work together. Okay, that is God's sovereignty. He is in control of all things, not just some things, not just most things, not just everything with exception of these events and those events. He is in control of all things, all things to work together for good, but not for good for just simply anyone but specifically to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to what? To become conformed to what? The image of his son. How many of you want to be more like Christ? All of us, right? I would worry about anyone who says, no, I don't want to be like Christ. As Christians, we all believe that. We all think that. We all feel that. We want to be more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have to understand that the circumstances that God brings into our lives is exactly what God uses in order to make us more like Christ. The whole idea of that verse is that all things happen in our life for the purpose of making us more like His Son. How good is God? That no matter what happens in your life, you know, if you're suffering, if you're going through um, terminal illnesses, people with cancer, you might, you might pray to God for God to cure that cancer. He may cure it and praise the Lord that he did. And on the other hand, he might not. And guess what? He still means good out of that as well. You don't know who he is using to bring himself towards those who don't believe. In other words, you know, if, if you have cancer and the Lord is not healing you of it, he might be using you as an instrument to reach someone else because of that cancer. I remember a young lady at the old church I went to. She was in her late 20s. She had four kids and she had cancer. And it was terminal. And she was told that she only had a few more weeks to live. And when the nurse came and was feeling pity upon her, she grabbed the nurse by the arm and said, do not feel sorry for me because God does not make mistakes. And not only that, but when the pastor came in to speak to her, she said this to the pastor, I have great news. And the pastor said, well, what's that? He said, well, in a few weeks, I am going to be healed, either by miracle here on earth or spiritually up in heaven. It's a win-win situation, no matter what it is. Had another couple that also died at an earlier age, and to their deathbed, they were testimony. They're they sharing. They're witnessing the gospel to those around them. Every chance they would get, they would witness the gospel to the nurses, to the doctors, to patients that they shared rooms with. Despite this, despite their failing health. And as we close out the final slide here, principles for application, as always. As we think about all that we have just read, as we consider the power of God that is at work in us, for you to really be able to praise God, for you to really to, to be able to praise God for this power, to, to be able to access the, this power, to be able to use this power, it first starts off with the need to study God's word continually. Because what you saw in the first three chapters is Paul's repeated emphasis for you to know, for you to know, for you to grow in your knowledge and wisdom, to have a spirit of revelation. To be able to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. To be able to know the power of God. And this power is emphasized over and over again. But you won't even understand or know this power if you're not in the word. And hopefully just this review of the first three chapters helps you to see just how strong of a theme this was in the first three chapters. 
but not only study God's word continually, but also reflect on his work and your walk. Reflect on his work and your walk. As we get into the season of Thanksgiving, you can always look back at what God has done in your life. Not only what he has done as revealed in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, but I'm sure that you have seen God's hand work in many different ways in your life since then. Where you have looked back in difficult trials, difficult circumstances, or, or prayers answered. You should always draw upon that and remember that. But not only reflect on his work, but also reflect on your walk. That his work is intended so that you would walk in a certain way that would glorify him. And then also the next point I have is to pray for continued strength. Paul prayed that you would be strengthened with power. That you would be strengthened to do God's will. And each and every day is a spiritual battleground for us. And so as you go to God in prayer, go always asking for God to bless you with strength. He provides that. But go to him and pray for that blessing as well. And finally, give praise for God's mighty work. God has done much in your life and there is no limit to the things that you can give thanks for. No limit to the things that you can give praise for. Even if you were just to go through chapter 3 and you were to list out all the things that I had highlighted, all the things that I had underlined, you would have a pretty long list of blessings. It's not simply that you have eternal life, but it's the quality of that eternal life as described in those first three chapters. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me urge you that the only way to experience these blessings, the only way to have these promises is to confess your sins and to repent to them, to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because none of us can stand before God on our own merit. None of us have done enough good works to be able to get us into heaven. None of us will be righteous before God. There was only one righteous, and that was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross, and he did it in order to save you. So that if you repent of your sins, meaning you turn away from your sins and you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you commit to walking after him, that you will have the gift of eternal life. You will have the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will have the power of God that not only saves you, but sanctifies you and ensures that you will glorify God going into the future. And all it takes is for you to repent and confess. And do not leave this service without talking to myself or one of the deacons. In fact, deacons and your wives, can you stand up for a moment? Deacons and deacons' wives. Yeah, just uh, look around. We have a few here. You can talk to myself or you can talk to any one of these individuals standing. Thank you very much. But please do not leave without speaking to someone. And for the rest of us, as we go into Thanksgiving week, may we have no shortage of things to give thanks to God for. Let's close in prayer.